So um, the, our theme has been generosity gospel, and uh, the angle I want to take today is about being a people of His presence. So the thinking is the Spirit is lavishly poured out on God's people, and then we're conduits of this presence. So uh, if you're new to Christianity, there's something called being filled by the Spirit, and you want to be a Spirit-filled person. That there's the possibility you think of spirit filled all about you, like God, come bless me, come bless me. But actually, God wants to make you a conduit of blessing to others. And God pours out His Spirit upon us as we gather, but that's because He wants us to be a conduit of His presence to others. So it's not enough to be spirit filled, we need to be spirit spilled. <laughs> so let's speak about being a people of His presence. I mean, I think the two greatest gifts a person can give you one is words. Someone's far away and they just write a letter to you like, oh, you savor those words, whether they're speaking words to you or they've written words. Words come very close to the middle of a person. And to have their words is to have something amazing. But the other amazing thing a person can give you is not just their words, it's their actual presence. And presence is such a delicious word because it points to one of the truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of a person's presence, not gifts, not phone calls, not pictures, not emails, not mementos, nothing is as good as having the person right there with you. And um, God's two great gifts to us is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Words, presence, actual presence, delicious presence. Um, the mission of Signal Church is we are stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. We're stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. So it's so important that we are deeply um, entrenched in the story of God. The story of God, you read the whole Bible. It's a, it's a, if you read little bits here, little bits there, you often don't pick up the story of it. But it is a story. And there's, a, there's many different ways of describing the story. And we're going to spend the rest of our time as Signal Church into the future, you know, looking into these various layers of story. But the one I want to touch on today, the story of the Bible at, at its heart is the story of God coming to live with His people. It's the story of God coming to live with His people. I'm going to, I'm going to take you through the, the whole Bible to persuade you on this. Firstly, let's go to the beginning. A garden temple. A garden temple. That's what you find in the opening chapters of the Bible. God is living with His people, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are made in God's image. Interestingly, ancient temples would have um, images of their gods in those temples, idols. Well, uh, there are no idols in this temple. God puts uh, Adam and Eve as living icons of, of himself in this, in this temple. And God creates humanity to dwell with him and to bear his image to the world. But there's no temple structure in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is the temple. And people are reckon they're living in harmony with themselves and with each other and with God and with nature. Human beings are made to house the presence of God. I love the story of John of Kronstadt, a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest at the time when alcohol abuse was rampant. None of the priests in his city ventured out of their, their churches to help the people. They waited for the people to come to them. John, however, compelled by love, went out into the streets. People said he would lift uh, the hungover, foul-smelling people from the gutter, cradle them in his arms, and say to them, this is beneath your glory. 
and your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Uh, and you, early in the Bible, the story goes so pear-shaped. Chapter 3, disaster strikes, deceived by the serpent. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They're tossed out of the garden. They're barred from God's presence. Sinful people can't live in the presence of our holy God. We have a problem. But God doesn't give up on his people or humanity. He, uh, through the ministry of Moses, there's a powerful deliverance. People are taken out of slavery and are taken to Mount Sinai. And uh, God is calling himself, not just calling his people, not just out of slavery, but to himself. And we know this because, because he tells Moses and Moses gives clear instructions that take up hundreds of verses in our Bible about building a tent structure, a tabernacle that would be God's home. And this tent structure would be in the middle of the, the, the people. The, the climax of the book of Exodus comes with the, when the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Once again, God lives among his people in all of his glory. But it's not exactly the same as the Garden of Eden because not everybody can go into the most holy place, like the inner, the inner room within this um, tabernacle, uh, you know, only the, the, holy, the, the, the most high priest is allowed in there once a year. So God lives with his people, but they can't come too close to him. Something's changed. And in fact, there's even a sense of threat in Exodus 19. If people approach God's holy, holy presence uninvited, he will break out against them. I mean, it's a scary language. And this tabernacle, you know, for a few hundred years is built amongst the, the people of God that are in a pilgrim phase, but there comes a time when they've settled into the promised land, and they've even got a capital city, Jerusalem, and David has a dream. He wants to build a more permanent structure, a temple, no longer a tabernacle, now a temple. He starts to gather material. He wants to build a house for God, but God won't let him because of the bloodshed that he's been involved in. But God lets his son, Solomon, and Solomon has the privilege, and, uh, and, and, and it's called the house of prayer for the nations. This temple is meant to, meant to be open to the whole world, anyone in the world, any nation should be able to come to this temple. And when Solomon is building it, uh, he prays a prayer of dedication. It's finished now. 2 Chronicles 6. And he says, now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And then I love what happens next, 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. And it says, the glory of God filled the temple. And it says the priests couldn't enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement and their faces were on the ground and they worshipped and they gave thanks to God. And they were saying, he is good, his love endures forever. He is good, his love endures forever. There's something about the outpour presence that ignites the worship and the praise of God's people. I mean, this is a fairly high point in the story, but the story keeps going and it reads a, like a gripping story because we, what happens next is the presence of God is lost. See, by the time the prophet Ezekiel arrives on the scene, several centuries later, everything has gone wrong. Just like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders rebel against God. They perpetuate evil and injustice. And because of their sin, the temple has, gets pillaged by an invading nation. 
and, uh, and, and the people of God are pulled out of the land. And again, we see our holy God cannot live among a rebellious people. But, but, but even in the midst of this tragedy, the lost presence of God, there is a promise. This is in the end of the story. In the final chapters of the book of Ezekiel, God promises a time when he will pour out his spirit on his people in a brand new way. Not only this, God gives Ezekiel this breathtaking vision of a new temple city. And the high point of the vision comes in the very last line in Ezekiel 48. The name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. There's a promise that the presence of God, which has been lost from the earth, will return to the earth in some kind of mysterious temple. Well, um, these people of Israel that have been pulled out of their lands, taken into exile, begin to return, and they rebuild the temple. This is the, the last part of the Old Testament. After 70 years, they, 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 they return, and they rebuild the temple, which is a pale shadow of the old temple, let alone Ezekiel's vision of a new temple. And the story is tragic, because they got the temple back, but uh, when it's rebuilt, the people who were old enough to remember the previous one burst out crying. It's just such a, like a shoddy repeat of, of, of what they'd seen before. And the Old Testament ends with this temple system failing as people quickly fall into corruption again. By the end of the Old Testament, Ezekiel's prophecy of this glorious new temple has not come about. The Hebrew Bible ends with more questions than answers. Is it impossible for humanity to dwell with God as he intended? This is the question the Old Testament ends with. And then 400 years of silence. And then enter Jesus, the tabernacle. Jesus, the tabernacle. 400 days later, a man from Nazareth appears near the Jordan River. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, we remember that his name, by instruction of an angel to his pregnant mother, was Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Christmas, we're going to celebrate that Jesus is the tabernacle who comes to live amongst us. The Apostle John, there are just little humans everywhere. It's a lovely experience for me. I'm just surrounded by new life. We absolutely love little children. We encourage you to breed if you're married. You want twins? Julian, I can pray for you. We, we got that one down. We had three kids and then we had twins. And everyone asked us, like, hey, so you're, do you have twins in the family? And the answer is, like, we do now. <laughs> we were the first. We do now. We're pioneering something. And we can pray for you for twins if you want. <laughs> anyway, the Word became flesh. Jesus is called the Word. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's what it says in John 1 verse 14. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God has come to live among His people in all of His glory, and He does so by becoming a man. The word dwell is the Greek word for tabernacle. It literally says, the Word became flesh, the Word tabernacled amongst us. All of the tabernacles of the Old Testament are, they, they point towards Jesus who would become the tabernacle. God amongst us, God living with us, God moving into the neighborhood. And I don't know if you know the story, but when Jesus dies on the cross, it's like God's presence breaks out. God's presence breaks out. 
John goes on record, goes on to record Jesus referring to his own body as the temple, saying that it will be destroyed, but rebuilt three days later. Jesus is the temple, but at Jesus' crucifixion, something amazing happens. The nearby actual temple, the curtain that shielded the inner room of the temple is, is torn in half. What is the significance of this event? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. Through Jesus' sacrifice, through his victory over death, he made a way for God to not only dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. The picture is of this temple being, the curtain being torn open because God is breaking out. He's breaking out. He's moving on. He's moving house. And then as Jesus goes to be the father, he he makes a promise. He says, go make disciples. And as you preach the gospel, uh, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. He makes a promise that he'll be with us. And I don't know if you know, when Jesus lives on the earth, the, the, old te- the, the temple's still ex- in existence. And then in AD 70, that's like 35 years after he returns to heaven, the temple is destroyed. It's absolutely destroyed, and it's destroyed to this day. And, and Jewish communities in Israel still go and pray by the Western Wall. The Western Wall is the wall that was meant to have once been connected to the temple. This is the holiest place in Israel because because this wall once housed the presence of God. Oh, he's not there anymore. The temple is gone. But just touch the wall that once touched God's presence. But God's plan is no longer a physical temple. All of it points to the Jesus temple. It also points to the church temple. You see, the presence of God that was promised through Ezekiel has returned to the church temple. And that's what the story in the book of Acts is. Acts chapter 2 speaks about Pentecost. 120 disciples gathered in an upper room. I love to just guess. There are 120 of us in this room possibly right now in an upper room. Jesus doesn't come physically. Not yet. He's gone back to the Father. Instead, the Spirit makes Christ present in the believers. In Ephesians, Paul says this to the Ephesian church. You are members of God's household with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to becoming a a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is the living temple. But think what this means, signal. You are a temple, This means at least five things, and probably could say another five things if we had more time. Number one, feel the utter privilege. Feel the utter privilege of this. 1 Peter 2 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus made the promise, I will build my church. He is building us into a spiritual house, meaning that we are animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that. We sinners, not only individually, but corporately, are the temple of the living God. God lives among us. Of all the people in the world, God has brought you into the temple. You're a living stone. See, when David in 1000 BC contemplated the building of the Jerusalem temple for the true God, he he prayed a prayer. He says, God, will you really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. It boggles the mind then to think that the one who fashioned the galaxies would elect to come and inhabit this community. Can you feel the utter privilege? Being his temple. Secondly, affirm his inhabitation. Inhabitation is another word for his indwelling. Affirm it. Just go, wow. We are called by Jesus. We gather together. God's presence is with us. It doesn't matter if you can't feel the presence of God. You can still say God's presence is with us. You affirm his inhabitation. In Acts chapter 2, they're all gathered in the room waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And the Spirit falls. The wind blows. And suddenly, a, I, I imagine a flame ball appears in front of them. And it says that little bits of flame break off from the flame ball and rest upon 112 of the 120 people. That's not what it says. In in Acts chapter 2, it says every single person gets a little bit of the flame. It's a powerful picture. Uh, I read this book recently by Reinhard Bonker, probably the most, not probably, definitely the most um, powerfully used evangelist in Africa and in history, probably next to Billy Graham, is Reinhard Bonker, a German missionary that came and planted a church in Lesotho years ago, and then uh, prayed for a, asked this healing evangelist to come pray f- for people, and they called all the sick to the city, and the healing evangelist never arrived. And he, he was a very timid person who had never seen a healing in his life, and he just thought, okay, I'll have to do it. And he laid hands on people, and they got healed, healed, healed. And so began his evangelistic healing ministry. Ronald Bonker claims that he's been in a meeting where a million people received the gift of spiritual languages at one time. I mean, maybe he's exaggerating. Maybe it's only 800,000. But he writes this book. He, he writes a book. Uh, he says, are you, the book is called, Are You a Fireproof or Flammable? His little book about the Holy Spirit. He says, God is not present in a general sense for everybody together and yet for nobody in particular. He's not divided in proportion to individuals. His presence is not regulated by your importance. He's fully with each of you. And that is how he is with the whole gathering. And we do not generate or attract his presence. His point here is you affirm the fact that God is present with us. The Lord's presence is active and not passive. He's not with us like a shadow, mute, void of all power, forgettable and contributing nothing in our existence. He is like the sun from which we can't and dare not escape, whose power and radiance brings life to our very existence. Then he says this, the Spirit of God does not just turn up like the congregation does on Sundays. He does not wait until we are prepared for his visit with suitable songs. We do not need to pray to God to be there because he is there. Always he is fully there. So it's important we just start off saying, God is here. Because that's the temple. You can't be the temple if you can't claim God is here. He is fully here. He would never make his redeeming work dependent on your emotional state, which goes up and down like an elevator in the Empire State Building, says Reinhard Bonker. One moment on the ground floor, the next to the clouds. God's sun never sets. He's always at the high point in new position. Very important to me. I have been following Jesus for 20 years, and I have gone to the top of the Empire State Building with spiritual experiences, and then I've gone to ground floor and sometimes to the basement. My own emotions have gone here and here, depending on circumstances in my life and the way I was processing it and maybe God's chastising in my life. 
but none of this ever took away God's presence from my life. And same with the church. We could have high points, low points, times when we're there just Sunday after Sunday, there are miracles and healings and outpoured presence. Then maybe there's a period of time where not so much. You don't ever back down in your confidence. The Lord is here. We affirm his inhabitation. It's by faith. By the word of God, he promises he is with us. Very important because some people can be in a community that is marked by unusual outpourings of the Spirit. And there are always some people in that community who say, hey, what's happening to the people around me is not happening to me. Is there something wrong with me? And of course, the answer is nothing wrong with you. We don't understand how some people experience God's presence more dramatically and others more gently. Others can, you know, can feel like the fire, sometimes in their bodies. Others just have a, you know, they, they, they say, I think God's with me now. And we, we affirm God's presence no matter how you experience it. There's nothing wrong with you if it's not happening to you. Who knows, maybe your time comes. <laughs> maybe there are some dramatic encounters in the future. But, but you don't live in postponement of that. You live as though God is with you. We affirm his inhabitation. But the third, the third thing about being the temple, the church temple, is that we welcome his outpourings and his workings. He, he does inhabit us, yet the book of Acts shows that he still pours out his spirit. He likes to pour out his spirit upon us. Reinhard Bonke, let me quote him again. When the spirit of God comes upon you, there is evidence of a changed life and a constantly changing life from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3. Your life can't stay stagnant. That is adverse to the very nature of God. The Lord of the winds calms the storms. The Prince of Peace will bring peace into your life. He will heal your body, bless the works of your hand, bless the fruit of your womb, Julie, and transform you into a living witness. I'm seeking past tense. That's what happened to us. We struggled to fall pregnant for a year, huh? or a year and a half. And then, uh, and then Julie went for a walk one day, came back, her face was shining. She said, God just spoke to me and said, we're going to have four sons. We got a bonus daughter thrown in. And then, then, then kids started coming. They just kept, they just kept coming. In, in uh, six years, we had five kids. And we lost at least one third of our brain cells since then. You should have seen us before we had kids. We were sharp. We were together. We were organized. <laughs> Actually not, hey. If we were organized, we probably wouldn't have had so many kids. It was just that was, the kids was like part of the chaos. But uh, one of our values of Signal Church, actually we, 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 we say it's our number one value. It's this, it's spirit-led worship and encounter. Spirit-led worship and encounter. And if you ever come to our welcome night, we, we will say that Jesus said the time is coming. Indeed, it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. Those are Jesus' words. So we love to slow down and savor God's goodness and presence in, in our weekly gatherings like, like we're doing today. And singing is one of our favorite ways to do that. But it's not just the singing, it's the space between the songs. And it's, it's not just fast singing, it's slow singing, it's just, it's, it's sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Okay, we are the church temple, what does this mean? I've got five things for you. Number four, build new temples. 
build new temples, preach the gospel, plant churches. This is the commission, I think, to every church. In the ancient world, people traveled from far and wide to encounter God at the temple of Jerusalem. But now the people of God are the temple and we take God's presence into the world. If the people are the temple, then they must make his glory known to all nations from now until Jesus returns. So when Jesus dies on the cross, God busts out of the Jerusalem temple. And when God's spirit is poured out in the 120 and just that room can't contain it, they spill out into the streets. It's one thing having the presence of God poured upon us when we gather as a community. It's another thing learning how to steward the presence of God into our work life and into the, our relationships with people and into the opportunities that God gives us during the week to interact with people. But, but also, if you read the book of Acts, it's like the church is so excited by the outpoured presence of God that they stay in Jerusalem for many years. Even though Jesus said, go make disciples, go to the nations, they stay there. And again, the presence of God has to bust out. In Acts chapter 8 onwards, it tells of the temple being extended into other cities. For example, in Acts chapter 18, you see the temple of God being extended into the city of Corinth. The, cities of, the city of Corinth used to host many impressive religious temples in which devotees, or is it devotees? How do you pronounce that word, Julie? Devotees or devotees? Devotees. Gathered to worship their gods. For example, Corinth was built around a hilltop called the Acro-Corinth, upon which a massive temple to Aphrodite existed. There were also the great temples to Poseidon, Apollo, Demeter, and Isis. My son Finn has read all of these um, books about Percy Jackson, and he knows all about the Greek gods. I, I read this to him the other day, and he told me what all of these gods are. Well, when Christ made his invisible entry into the city of Corinth through Paul's preaching of the gospel, he didn't look for a, a physical property. He didn't want like a, a temple to Jesus. Instead, he chose people as his home. The disciples of Jesus had no formal meeting place because they were the meeting place. Paul writes to the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Paul asked the Corinthians, God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So gospel preaching spreads the presence, church planting builds new temples. And Jesus makes that gorgeous promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he keeps that promise. In Mark chapter 16, it says, the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them. And then number five, extend each temple. Extend each temple. If, if every church is a temple of Jesus, and every life is a living stone, and and and. and in um, Ephesians, it says that each of you being added, and 1 Peter 2, 2, it says you're being added. There are more and more living stones being added to each temple. So we should welcome them. And that's one of the reasons the signal we value guests. We really do. And we welcome you to Jesus' home. When you go to a Hillsong church, if you've ever been to Hillsong church, wow, explosive worship, and there's a big sign, welcome home. But I was thinking, whose home is it? Is it? Is it I'll tell you whose home it is. If this is Jesus' temple, welcome to Jesus' home. It's amazing that we're welcome to, be, to live in Jesus' home. Sometimes we speak about God as the guest of honor in our meetings. That can't be right. He's not the guest. <laughs> this is his home. 
and he's welcoming us to be at home in his home. But we welcome guests. You see, in Corinth, the pagan temple devotees, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And they offered sacrifices to demons, not to God. But the true temple in Corinth was not made of brick and mortar, but of mobile living stones. Though outwardly impressive, the unimpressive motley crew that was the Corinthian church would gather together, and those who visited, we're told, would, 1 Corinthians 14 says, would fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. God's given us as a vision, as a church, to welcome our friends and families and whoever else comes to church. And we pray that they come to us and they feel our welcome and they feel our warmth and they go, God is really among you. Because that's what makes us distinctive from all the peoples on the earth. Will our mission succeed? Yes! (laughs) I mean, look how far it's already come. And if you ever wonder in the biggest scheme of things, like in 10,000 years' time, will we succeed? Well, the Bible tells you how it all ends. The Bible ends with the garden city temple. Read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. John sees this extraordinary depiction of the new city of God. It's a garden city, but something is conspicuously missing. There's no temple anywhere in Revelation 21, 20. In fact, it keeps on saying there was no temple there. There's no temple there. But wait, one of the amazing descriptions of this new Jerusalem, this garden city, is that it's in the shape of a cube, which means it's as high and wide as it's long. And then you realize what the symbolism is. Where else in the Bible is, a, is there a description of a cube? And the answer is the most holy place was built as a cube. The entire new creation is the most holy place. God living among his people. The future is guaranteed. We get to be part of it. We're people of the past and we're people of the future and we are people of the present. Let's stand up.